Once again, let me say thank you for being here tonight. Um, we, uh, we have a, a subject that, again, uh, sort of thorny and a little complex and complicated and very controversial and at times very confrontational in our culture right now. But we as a people of God are, are never going to shy away from that. We want to study the Word of God and figure out what it says and then let the chips fall where they may. And that's what we're going to do tonight as we continue to think about, uh, about same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Everybody have an um, outline? Douglas, I really appreciate you and Brad taking care of that. That's, I think we're good. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the promise that those who seek wisdom from you and ask you for it will receive it and be blessed with it. And that's what we ask for tonight, Father. We ask for wisdom and we ask for, for ears and eyes that can discern your word. And, and, and not only that, Father, can help us to grow up in our minds, in our thinking, in, in all of our words and all of our actions and affections to be disciples of your son Jesus in this community. We're, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful, Father, for your spirit that makes it uh, become a reality in the way that we live. And so as we study tonight, we're asking, Father, to be good stewards of your word, but not just in an intellectual academic sense, Father, but to be brought into your presence through your word in such a way, Father, that these great truths and the, the obligations of ministry that you have placed upon us, Father, that, that all of that find itself in faithfulness and trustworthiness and obedience, fulfilling your great commission to go into all of the world, into all of the neighborhoods, into all of the boroughs, to go into all of the bad areas and uh, the right side and the wrong side of tracks to make disciples of people, Father, who will listen and, and consider the gospel in such a way that they allow, it, allow you through it to change them. And to this end, we pray in the name of Jesus tonight. Amen. The uh, relationship between homosexuality, the Bible, and the people of the Bible, in our case, Christians specifically, is a, is a topic that can't be ignored, nor will it go away. Uh, when something big hits social media or something big gets announced on the, the major radio stations and TV stations, typically uh, I expect to see social media just gush with every opinion under the sun when controversies begin to trend. Uh, when this uh, subject uh, came to the fore, uh, uh, the, the fore vision of our, our nation, uh, I was not disappointed. Uh, the predictable avalanche of self-expression, uh, lots of opinions, lots of it uh, not worth reading at all, uh, some of it very thoughtful, some of it um, uh, worth reading. My, my concern, and thus uh, the reason for our lesson tonight, was, uh, was what we read coming from the keyboards of those professing to be people of faith. Uh, and I, I say this humbly. The degree of biblical illiteracy on the part of many Christians in our nation is frightening. Which is weird in a world where access to the Word of God has never been more convenient immediate or multi-platformed. I mean, traditional Bibles to smartphones to tablets to computers. 
And at the same time, a lot of what was being published, as you know, all of these things are coming from all over the United States, from the right and from the left and from the up and from the down, what was being published was acidic and vitriolic, and at least in my perception of it, at times a little hateful. You got the sense that some folks were chuckling to themselves as they condemned people to hell. This is why I want us uh, to begin tonight with this little reminder from Peter that was read as our scripture reading from Brian. I want to focus specifically on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Say those words with me. But do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, the first thing that's said here, the, the people of God are to be biblically and culturally informed. The people of God are to be biblically and culturally informed. We are always in the process of being prepared to reveal the Christ. We are preparing for the moment that we can share the center of our hope. And this, my friends, is, is the power of true Bible study. It's not just facts, but the formation of an informed spiritual worldview as it not, not just as we, we think about it in our, in our studies and in our, our guarded places, but as it begins to, to be challenged and, and to go forth as light into a world that's very dark, and it begins to intersect with culture. This is also the power of worship. As we meditate on the truths of God and fill our hearts and minds, as they become more real to us, and they do become embedded like concrete, like etchings into our heart, it begins to well up into worship. And we begin to recognize that, that God really is the center of, of everything that we hold dear. That, that God really is the one who saves us and loves us and teaches us how to love one another and how to love Him and, and how to get our minds right in this world and, and how to get our affections off of idols and, and back onto the very thing that our heart needs. That God-shaped hole in our heart needs God to fill it. But then secondly, you know, it's really hard to misconstrue the words gentleness and, and respect. It's really hard to misconstrue the words gentleness and, and, and respect when it comes to conversing with people that at times are, are not just going to disagree with, us, disagree with us, but even be hostile to us. And as we, we begin to speak, and not, not just live out the ramifications and implications of our faith, but we begin to speak the words of our faith, disagreements are going to be inevitable, and get disagreements inevitably, although not always necessarily so, can lead to alienation. That's why we have to have it sort of straight in our mind that, that Christians are bridge builders to a culture that is hostile to it. Peter is not calling for blandness, and he's not calling for weakness, or to speak from a heart that, that's void of emotion. But Peter is saying that there's an appropriate way to respond, that, that there's an appropriate way for us to respond that does not create an us versus them kind of scenario. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, behind every answer is a changed life. 
That is one of the powers of the Christian witness, the Christian testimony. Is that what is behind our answers is a changed life. You know, I'm not, I'm not much of a scholar in, in, in much of anything, but I am a scholar in one area more than anybody else in this room, and that is how God has changed my life. And the one thing that you can't argue with, try as you may, the one thing that you can't argue with is a changed life. And what Peter is telling the church is that when you speak with gentleness and you speak with respect and you speak in informed ways, and before all of that and at the center of all of that you have revered, you have sanctified Christ in your heart, there is a way to, to talk about things that are controversial and things that at times can lead to conflict, but in the end there is some shame that is produced because of slander that is said about God's people because of the behavior that they have is godly. So, that means that we revere Christ in our heart. And with that said, let's consider uh, some statements in need of a response. Now, I'm not going to be able to address everything and, um, uh, you know, I'm kind of going back and forth with what to do with this thing. I thought about issuing some, some cards out and just having people write down their questions, but I think I pretty much in reading all of the, the, uh, the, the requisite material on the subject, discovered what those questions are. I'm not going to be able to address all of those, so I want to give you a couple of resources. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, this, uh, this book here on the right, has written, um, uh, in fact, this may be the newest book that is out on the market. It was published this year. It's entitled, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Uh, the other book on the left is written by Sam Alberry. You may remember that name. I quoted uh, him a couple of times this morning in the sermon. He has written a book, Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, Kevin DeYoung, bo both of these books, by the way, are, are not academic. They are, they are not uh, difficult to read. They're, very, they're written in kind of a popular style. Um, uh, Kevin DeYoung is going to write more from a theological standpoint as a professor he is, he is going to try to cover all of the texts in the Bible that deal with homosexuality or same-sex attraction. And at the end of that book, he is going to deal specifically with some questions. One of the reasons why I'm recommending his book to you, if you want to do some study and do some further reading on this subject, is to read that book because he does have uh, quite a bit of question and answer at the end of the book. Uh, Sam Alberry's book does the same thing. Uh, the thing that is really powerful about Sam's book, though, is that Sam struggles with same-sex attraction, but he is a devout Christian who has committed himself to a celibate life. He believes that the Word of God is, is the truth by which he will live his life, that he will worship the God who created the heavens and the earth and him only, and whatever that entails, whatever that costs, that is the direction of his life. And he has made it his ministry to help others who struggle with same-sex attraction but haven't made the connection on how to engage that kind of a struggle with the God of the Bible. He has made it his mission and ministry to help those two to engage and to connect. He also has some question and answer in there, not nearly to the depth or to the detail that, that Kevin DeYoung writes, but both of these books are very, very good. Uh, I would also recommend Sam Alberry's book... Uh, from another, uh, from another angle, just as a serendipity uh, to our discussion tonight, 
one of the things, and I, I can't tell you the number of articles, the number of journals, the number of commentaries, the number of books that are written specifically on this subject, the number of books that are written on the New Testament and, and, and the Old Testament ideas or, or views or teachings or scriptures on sexuality. Uh, you know, there was, there was a point where I just uh, had to kind of step back from the reading for a while because uh, my mind was starting to feel like an anvil. But one of the things that was incredibly important to me as I read, especially from the hand of Christian authors who, who are struggling with uh, celibacy and, and, and uh, living with a same-sex attraction, is how important the church is. How important the church is as, as, as a help and a support and a community and a, and a source of encouragement and a, and a fount of, of counsel and wisdom and of love and, and of, of, of friendship for people like Sam. And when you read the stories, and there, and there are others like that uh, out there, but when you read over and over and over again, you begin to feel once again the importance of the mission of the church to, to, to live as Christ did in the community and to reach out to all people who, who are struggling with the meaning of life and the significance of life and with destructive behaviors and, and the mission of the church to reach out the gospel. Now, um, uh, with that said, uh, we're going to look at three statements tonight. And again, I, you know, I just mentioned I, I read and read and read and read. Uh, what I'm going to say tonight and what I'm going to address tonight has been influenced by more writers than I have time to cite. So uh, part of this is me and part of this is... Uh, the, the work and the influence of a lot of writing uh, and a lot of reading over the last two years. What we're going to do is make a bold statement, statement, kind of statement that you might hear around a water cooler at work, an innocent statement that leads to a conversation, a profound conversation. And what we want to do tonight is to just sort of be prepared to give an answer with gentleness and respect. Here's the first statement. The New Testament... Paul specifically, is addressing only abusive, exploitative homosexual practices. The point of those kinds of statements is this. Paul only knew the abusive homosexual relationships. He knew only the predatory kinds of homosexual relationships in the ancient world. And Paul knowing only these kinds of homosexual activities in the ancient world, had no concept of healthy, monogamous, same-sex relationships. What he has written is to condemn abusive and predatory, uh, exploitive, uh, excessive homosexual behavior, therefore making loving, monogamous relationships that are known today and experienced today permissible. That's the point of a statement like that. Now, that there were abusive, exploitative homosexual practices is, is just not to be debated. Uh, back in 2013, I uh, read a book by uh, a young uh, uh, Amish, uh, actually a Quaker woman by the name of Sarah Rudin, entitled Paul Among the People. And what she does in this book is, is look at Paul and try to put Paul's writing in the culture of the first century. And she does an excellent job in documenting the very real abuses in pederasty, prostitution, or homosexual activity in military victories, that is, showing complete domination over a conquered enemy. But here's the thing. 
First, the writers of the ancient world were aware of homosexual relationships where people of the same sex were attracted to each other. It wasn't uh, man-boy, it wasn't rape, it wasn't military conquest, it wasn't uh, predatory, it wasn't abusive. The people of the same sex were attracted to each other. As we saw in Romans 1 this morning, Paul writes in verse 27 of Romans 1 that men abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. That language, one for another, is the language of mutuality. There were other Greek words that Paul could have used to specifically designate the abusive practices, but that's not what he uses here because he's talking about something more inclusive. Even in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own hands. Notice the prohibition is to both parties equally. The reference in Leviticus 20 is not a reference to a rape or some kind of a forced relationship. Leviticus prohibits the consensual homosexual activity. But then secondly, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to reference probably uh, the, the greatest scholar in, in the world today when it, in, in terms of uh, sexuality in the Bible, a fellow by the name of William Loder in one of his books documents uh, this speech by Aristophanes, uh, it's actually the fourth speech in Plato's uh, Symposium. And uh, Aristophanes is a, is a satirist. Um, there have been uh, all kinds of speeches that have made. It's Aristophanes' uh, time. It's the fourth speech in Symposium. And basically, as a, as a funny guy, as a comedian, as a satirist, Aristophanes gets up and talks about how uh, the gods were involved in, the, in, in, in this... this uh, to use my words and not his, kind of this genetic causation that, uh, that the original humans were androgynous, that the gods split them in half, and, and through the rest of their life they are looking for either their hetero self that they're attracted to or their, their same-sex self that they're attracted to. Now again, this is satire. Whether or not anybody was believing of what it was that Aristophanes said is, is not really the point. Satire only works if it finds a, a, a toehold in truth or reality. This speech, even though it's satire, reveals that the knowledge of these kinds of relationships that were mutual and consensual existed in the ancient world. Here's the bottom line. Paul, along with others in the ancient world, were very much aware of the different kinds of homosexual behaviors and relationships. And what Paul is addressing is all the behaviors, whether predatory or monogamous or whatever they might be, are outside of the will of God and have created the spiritual crisis that made the cross of Jesus necessary. Number two, homosexuality should be and eventually will be recategorized from a sin to acceptable behavior. The point here, when, when somebody is talking about uh, uh, recategorizing homosexuality, it, it, usually something like slavery comes up, that the Bible was supportive of sl slavery. But now we have come to see that slavery is wrong. In fact, where Christianity has gone, it has tried to eradicate slavery because 
uh, of, of its it, demeaning be, uh, abuse of, of human beings, those made in the image of, of, Jesus, uh, of God. As history moves forward, the traditional Christian view of homosexuality, like it did for slavery, will change too. Don't be on the wrong side of history. In other words, you know, the Bible got slavery wrong. Why not homosexuality? Well, here's the thing. There has never been historical consensus. Never has been historical consensus. Never a majority biblical position that said slavery was biblically permissible. On the contrary, and we know this in our own country, it was highly contested, leading in part, sadly, in this country to a civil war, in part to a civil war. But what we actually see in the Bible is that Paul, in writing to Philemon about Philemon's slave Onesimus, who is now a brother, some very interesting things. Onesimus ran away as a slave. He became a Christian somehow, either in contact with Paul or others, and is now, after meeting Paul in prison, is now on his way back to his master Philemon. And Paul is writing to Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself. Paul could have said, let Onesimus go. And Philemon probably would have done that. But he probably would have remained angry at, at, at Onesimus for having run away in the first place. But Paul has bigger fish to fry than just the letting go of a slave. He is not so much concerned with ending a bad institution, even though he is, as creating the brotherhood of man through the gospel that will eradicate in time abusive, abusive human relationships that it comes in contact with. So in other words, most of the understanding of what the Bible has to say about slavery that was interpreted as a way to, 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 to racially abuse someone was, was a misinterpretation of the gospel. On the contrary, church history, though, has unanimously taught that homosexual behavior is wrong. And as we saw this morning, homosexual behavior is part of Paul's list of sins that contribute to the universal human sin crisis which made the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus for us to be able to get right with God made all of that necessary. Only recently, in our own generation, in, in my generation, has that kind of changed. Uh, one of the, I think, probably one of the leading biblical New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, believes that there's a reason for this, that the old Gnosticism has found new footing in our time, that culture and religion, basically anything that is outside of our own skin, these things are irrelevant because they are misleading and or deceptive to human beings. Beneath the layers of societal influences in education and religion, etc., 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 lies your real authentic self that you have to dig out in order to become the authentic you. If you're looking at it from a philosophical standpoint, it's Nietzsche's getting beyond the, 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 the morals of good and evil to, to actualize yourself in such a way that you become the real authentic you. I mean, it's all over the place uh, in, in, our, in the world, not just in our own culture. But church history, church scholarship, church theology has unanimously, up until this very age, has taught that homosexual behavior is wrong. Because it is part of that list that made the cross necessary. 
not something that changed through space and time as the gospel began to, 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 to change the way people were relating to each other and brought them into community with each other, into community with God through the gospel. The bottom line, the analogy between slavery and homosexuality, it breaks down. That homosexuality will not be recategorized like these other things because it is different. They are not in the same category. And then, and then finally, and perhaps this is the one that finds the most traction with, with folks in and out of the church, how can you doom a person to life without sex? How can you doom a person to a life without sex? The point, I think everyone gets the point more or less, celibacy is a bad thing because it diminishes your experience of life as a human being. You know as well as I know that we live in a culture where the sexual experience is what gives you identity. But here's the thing. Thomas Schmidt, um, uh, in, in one of his books, writes, it's only an aberration of our own sorry generation to equate the absence of sexual gratification with the absence of full personhood, the denial of being, or the deprivation of joy. What he's basically, and that's the end of the quote, basically what he's saying there is that we don't think that we can have joy, we don't think that we're truly human, we don't think that we have full personhood unless there is a straight-on, full-on sexual experience of some sort. Now, quite frankly, folks, this is the problem of sexual experience becoming idolatrous. And one of the things that, uh, that in, in all of this reading, in all of this study, and, and in conversations with folk, one of the things that, that I've been convicted of is the church needs to rehabilitate the concepts of celibacy and chasteness. The church needs to rehabilitate the concepts of celibacy and chasteness. Jesus himself was single and celibate in his mission that brings a blessing to people like you and me. And I'm not sure of everything that Jesus is trying to say here, but he is saying something very profound when he says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 12, there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Paul has the same mind in 1 Corinthians 7. There's uh, an, another writer by the name of Ed Shaw in an article who says, and, and he makes this wonderful point, and, and this is how I think that we begin to understand how the idea of celibacy begins to be rehabilitated among God's people. He says, love is not just communicated by the sex one has had, but by the sex one hasn't had. Love is not just communicated by the sex one has had, but by the sex one hasn't had. Now, if you're having a conversation with somebody in, in our culture right now, that will absolutely strip all of their gears. But think about it this way. The married man who says no to the advances of a woman on a business trip because of his love for God and for his wife and for his family has said something really profound about love, has he not? And the same is true of the Christian same-sex attraction, uh, attraction uh, struggling brother or sister who chooses celibacy out of a love for God. Celibacy has to be rehabilitated 
in the church. For people to understand that you can be whole and single, that you can be unmarried and still the full person that God wants you to be and to be full of mission the way that the Christ and the Apostle Paul were full of mission and flourished as human beings in the love of God and in the mission of God. But doesn't celibacy mean loneliness? That's not lie. Let's be honest. Let's be truthful. Doesn't celibacy mean loneliness? I mean, no mate in life. No children. No one to share life with. Unfortunately, that thinking is much too common among Christians who have made unwittingly marriage and family life the ultimate values in life. We believe that, 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 that celibacy is going to be void of intimacy, that celibacy is going to be void of profound relationships. And because of some of our unwitting stances on the importance of marriage and family life, that they have become the ultimate values, what we find are people struggling, even in marriage, with loneliness, laying in, in bed at night or eating dinner across the table from people that they don't feel intimate with at all but feel more like a roommate with. Mainly because we've made those, those, the marriage and family issues to be the ultimate, and in fact have made them at some level idolatrous. That whenever we as a church begin, as a community of God's people, begin to say that you can't be fulfilled unless you're married or unless you have a family without saying that God is at the center of all things, that God is the only one that will meet all of your needs. It's only God that will never let you down. It's only God who is always going to be there. That it's God who is going to fill that hole. It's not a wife. It's not a husband. It's not children. Then we have somehow raised it up to the level where it is going to defeat us and at times make us lonely as well. Our message should be that God is the ultimate value of the universe and the only one who will meet our every need, whether we are married or whether we are celibate. The bottom line is that celibacy did not hinder the Christ nor Paul from lives that flourished in the presence of the will of God. And although at times difficult, celibacy is a small price to pay for the gift of God's grace. You know, when we interact with, with people in the community and we find ourselves in these kinds of conversations, you know, one of the things that we're going to find is that there's a lot of misinformation out there that people are going to talk about, you know, the way that Paul was using a word or that word, and it, it's not so. And it's part of our duty with gentleness and respect to be able to respond to that in such a way and to correct that kind of thing and say, no, 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 no. When you really read the Bible and you really understand what's happening in the ancient world, there were all kinds of homosexual relationships that were taking place and they weren't just excessive or abusive or predatory or exploitative. Or when people begin to say, you know, if, if you Christians are right in what you're saying, you know, you're really dooming to somebody to loneliness. You're dooming them to a life without sex. You're dooming them to, to a life without a mate and all of these things that you enjoy in your own relationship. And our response is, God is at the center of all things. That the Savior that we follow and believe to be the most joyful, happiest human being because of His perfect life and relationship with God was celibate. And he had tremendously profound relationships with men and women as a celibate. 
as a single during the life that he lived. And the true is the same for us. That if we find ourselves being called into a celibate life or, or being led into a celibate life, it doesn't mean the end of our world. It doesn't mean that we can't be a human being. Rehabilitating the idea of a celibate life begins with the church. One time I was sitting in class and uh, the subject of homosexuality came up. This is many, many, many years ago. And uh, one of the students in the class said, well, you know, the thing that we've got to do is we've just got to, to let the homosexual community know what we believe and we've got to say it louder and we've got to say it harder so that they understand where we stand on this. And my take on that kind of a statement is, guess what? I think they already know what we believe on the subject of homosexuality. They already know. And one of the reasons why the church is having such a hard time sometimes reaching out to the homosexual community, to the homosexual community looking for the church, to the church for answers, is because we haven't learned gentleness and respect. And we sometimes struggle with the setting Christ aside, apart, revering Christ and our hearts part as well. One of the most uh, used passages that, I, that I've used over the last uh, two Sundays is John 8. You know, here's this woman caught in adultery in the very act, taken before Jesus. None of her accusers have any, any doubt whatsoever as to what the law of Moses is. It's a sin. Nobody debates that. It's a sin. And not only a sin, it's a sin that deserves death by stoning. You know what? The woman is not, is, is not pleading for her life. The woman knows that the evidence being caught in the act and dragged before Jesus is, is, is plain enough. She knows that she's guilty of a sin that deserves stoning by death. And Jesus, who knows everything there is to know about the Old Testament who knows the Old Testament, who knows the law of Moses, knows what Moses says as well. So why is that story, why is that story in John's Gospel? Why is that story in John's Gospel? Is it because we don't have a clue as to what sin is? Or is it in there because we struggle with how to connect to people whom we need to say, go and sin no more? By first saying, we don't condemn you. Acceptance. When you see Jesus with the tax collectors and the sinners, when you see Jesus with the lepers, where nobody else would be around them, they were persona non grata, they were people out there on the fringe, nobody would touch them. What is it that Jesus always does when he heals them face to face? Before he says be healed, what does he do? He touches them. Why? The acceptance. And the understanding that what he has to offer makes them pure, that their uncleanness, that their impurity is not going to reach back and grab him somehow, but what is great and powerful and, and pure and, 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 and godly and, and full of light about him goes that direction towards them. 
And when people begin to revere Christ in their heart in such a way, and it's not, it's not just intellectual, but they're really worshiping God in such a way that they, 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 their worship is because they get the truth of God. And they understand the gospel and how the gospel has changed them. Then all of a sudden they begin to realize that everybody around them that doesn't know that gospel is actually a person, a, a human being, in need of the joy that they possess, that we possess, that we, that we know intimately. And what happens is we begin to see happening at the MacArthur Park Church of Christ the same kinds of things that Paul wrote about to the church in Corinth. That you were this and you were that and you were this and you were that, but now you are washed and sanctified. And that's what you once were. But now you're children of God. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now, and we want to offer an invitation to anyone who'd like to become a, a child of God tonight. We're going to have come a, a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you tonight, come down, talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing. Faith that will not shrink, though pressed by every foe, that will not tremble on the brink, of any earthly 